0: It is a great joy to be back in the pulpit it's been a very interesting week for me it's a little bit like coming back out of summer break when I was in school I I don't know where my pencils are and I forgot to get a notebook I'm here and my mic is on and I'm thankful for it and I even have a message believe it or not Range. Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, one of the cards I received as, uh, just before I went on sabbatical was sent to me with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> he said this, rest time is not wasted time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take the occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by doing less. Well, rest we did. I don't think I set my alarm but twice in the course of three months. Um, I was able to complete a number of those projects that I told you I wanted to get done and was able to do some woodworking and find some rest in that. And we visited with extended family. The, the best part of sabbatical by far was uh, three weeks and over 5,000 miles with my wife's arms around me on a motorcycle. Uh, I commend motorcycle riding for couples. Uh, Men, that's just a good deal. Uh, Anyway, Doc Doc Wiberman has a different opinion, so you can talk to him. (laughs) I want to tell you that the Rocky Mountains are as glorious in October as you have seen in pictures and... uh, A joy to visit <coughs> with Hannah and Ethan, and uh, my heart, Susie's heart, just filled with gratitude to you uh, for your prayers, for your gift of time away. I read an article prior to going on sabbatical that extolled the virtues of sabbatical for pastors and it was written to a church and one of the things that this man writing said was that your pastor will feel loved and appreciated. I do. And I am just overflowing with gratitude for... The leadership at this church, both elders and deacons, um, your faithfulness in the Word uh, for shepherding the flock—I um, never had any doubts. Um, but this place, uh, again, by the grace of God and the the strength of God that He supplies is is. Uh, a place of great joy for me, and you are a delight, and I'm grateful. I'm here to preach, uh, and and so we want to open the Word of God, and as Jeff. Man, Jeff, you stole the punchline. You told told people we were going to be in the book of Philippians. I was looking forward to that. We are going to be in the book of Philippians, and at least this morning we are, and it is a privilege to turn there. Let's do that. It's always a significant moment in a church when you begin a new book, and I can give you my reasons for being here, but I don't know all of the Lord's reasons for leading us here but I know that you meet it just like I meet it, with a sense of anticipation for what God will do on us corporately, what he will do on in us individually and personally, and I want this morning to dive right in and take a bite. This isn't going to be a, a, your typical introductory message. I'm not going to give you much by way of context. I'm not going to talk to you about the situation in Philippi or, or the trials they were facing or about Paul's circumstances. We're going to come to the Lord's table today, and I... I want to just go right to the truth that is exposed in these first couple of verses. I know that those things will come out in time. Philippians, in fact, is one of Paul's most transparent and biographical letters. He really opens up to the church at Philippi, a church whom he loved deeply and they loved him. And so we will have time to to see all those contextual things that are so important as you study a book. But this morning, we want to just begin looking at the first two verses, if you would, with me. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to your word again, realizing that we are dealing with holy things, powerful things, a living word, an active word, a word that is able to pierce, a word that is able to convict, a word that is able to comfort, a word that is able to give the knowledge that leads to the wisdom that leads to salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things. We ask that you would teach us this morning by your spirit. Amen. Well, I want to set our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ, and this might seem like a strange place to do it. I hope that as we move forward, you will see that it is not strange at all. We're looking at Paul's salutation, his opening greeting to the church at Philippi, but what I want you to see and what I hope that you'll understand this morning is that this is significantly more than a salutation. You've written letters, I've written letters. And we tend to just blow through the opening words because we know that they're just mere convention. But it is not that way with Paul. It is not that way with the scripture. It's true that this is a doorway into the body of the letter of Philippians, but we need to pay attention to it. There's a great deal in it. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul could write really rich and condensed stuff. A lot of ink has been spilled showing that Paul's introductory greetings followed one tradition or another. It was perhaps a mix of of various Greek elements or Hebrew elements. I'm really not all that interested in all of that. What I want you to see in this is that Paul is not introducing a letter in the way that you and I would. What we have is substantially more than dear Philippians. There's no verbal clutter in Scripture Every word is inspired, every word is intentional, every word is tried in a furnace seven times, and every word is God-breathed and profitable. And so if you're here this morning and you have not been part of this church, and perhaps you don't come from a tradition of expository preaching, some of this may seem at the outset somewhat tedious. You're going to want to say, get to the substance of this thing. There's substance, trust me, and we need to be disciplined enough to, to pay attention to the nuggets that are here and not just run past them. I remember when I was learning to fly fish, I would, in my youthful enthusiasm, want to just get in the water and begin casting. It was some time before I learned that the biggest and the best fish hold near the banks, and I'd been stepping on them trying to catch them. So it is in the Word of God, right from the beginning, right at this bank, right at the beginning of this letter, all the way to the end of the letter. Everything that is here is profitable, and there are lunkers for us to catch. Look again with me at the first sentence. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus. There's our first word. We're going to see four words, four nouns. I just want to draw out four out of this today that will be helpful to us as we think about who we are in Christ and what God's posture is toward us as his children. These first two words will help us understand who we are in Christ. The second two words will help us understand the Lord's disposition toward us, the very state in which we stand before him. They are wonderful and they are rich terms. And we find the first one here was Paul introduces himself and his sidekick, Timothy. He refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ. The Philippians were well aware of who Paul and Timothy were. Both had been involved in preaching the gospel in Philippi, both have been involved in planting this church. They had visited it on a number of occasions. They were very well aware. And I would say this just by way of side note, that Paul includes Timothy here, not as a co-author, but because Timothy is with Paul at this point and they are writing, perhaps Timothy even writing the words as Paul dictates. Paul is the author of this book. So as Paul introduces himself and Timothy. He he says, "We are bondservants of Christ." Have you ever stopped to think why does he do that? Do you ever do that when you're writing a letter? Dave Teacher of truth. (laughs) Whatever it might be for you. Carla, mother of six. You don't do that. We don't do that. But Paul does that. And what he shows us is what is going on in his head and the way that he thinks about his life. We have that sort of biographical data on Facebook or perhaps you've passed out a business card. I can tell you what would be on Paul's business card The Apostle Paul bond servant of Christ Jesus Who are you Paul he doesn't begin with his national heritage he doesn't begin with all of his his stats his gender his status as a as a single man he doesn't speak about his job he doesn't define himself by any of the myriad of things that people in our culture use to define ourselves, Paul begins right here. I am a bondservant of Christ, and so is Timothy. And brothers and sisters, I believe this morning if Paul were here preaching to you, he would point a finger to you and say, and you too, if you're in Christ, are a bondservant of Christ. Do loss literally slave. That's what the word means. And you say to me, well, if it means slave, why didn't the translators of the New American Standard render it slave? Why did they say bondservant or bondslave? And I've given you what really amounts to kind of a long and multifaceted answer in the past. But fundamentally, it's because they believe the word slave would not communicate well in English, even though that is the meaning of the Greek word. Slave comes with all kinds of baggage in the English-speaking world. Conjures up images that translators thought were too painful and too closely associated with, you know, involuntary servitude and forced subjection and all the abuses of slavery, and so they tried to find a term that would convey the concept that they thought might be better. And you can understand that, even in our our current cultural context. You can see how you might want to soften terminology like this as people are so sensitive to these things. But there's a problem And the problem is that so many in the church in this present day have lost any and all sense of of a life that is subjected to the lordship of Christ. I'm just a bondservant. I still hold the powers of choice and self-determination. I still hold a right to serve him or not to serve him. That is not what the word actually conveys at all. And we, broadly again, I'm speaking of the church, have become untethered from what is consistent in Scripture that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master, and we, his people, are his slaves. We exist to serve him. We have been saved to follow him. We as his people are consumed with a heart to want to be obedient to him. That's not legalistic language. That's just the language of the Bible. And we would do well again to recapture this concept. In fact, the Legacy Standard Bible, which just came out recently, has gone and and consistently translated this word again and rendered it as slave. We'll have more to say on that another day. In addition to the bad taste, perhaps, that the word slave leaves in our mouth, we're, we're also conditioned, aren't we, by our American ideals to, to reject all this kind of thing, this idea of submission, this idea of, of being anyone's slave, the idea of ownership and obedience and servitude. No, we're an independent people and we, we, we believe in self-determination and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and having all your freedoms in place. We have a bill of rights and we have declared independence, right? And we need to be careful, ever careful, of, of, of conflating what is America with what is truly scriptural. More troubling still than the meaning of the word or the culture in which we've grown up is that right within our own heart and soul, we are a people who kick against serving anyone. That's the way the flesh is. It bucks this notion. The word doulos literally referred to an individual who was owned as property. owned as property, and you were a person who was at the disposal of and possessed by as property a master, and that master had complete authority over his slave. A doulos had no rights. A doulos had no independence. A doulos had no authority. He was to be completely consumed with the interests of his master, so when when Paul defines himself right up front, you want to know who I am. I'm a doulos. He's saying something about the nature of what it is to be a Christian, not just an apostle. To be a Christian is to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt in my mind, as I said earlier, that what was true for Paul would also be true in his mind, and it is true with Scripture that every Christian is also a doulos. Paul is not teaching that here. This isn't didactic. He's not saying, look, you all are bondservants. He's referring to himself. He's speaking biographically. But let me ask you, were you bought from the auction block having been the slave of sin, or was that just the Apostle Paul's condition? Let me ask you, did, did you once serve sin, indulge it in the flesh and in the mind, and were you a, by nature a children or a child of wrath, even as the rest, or was that just the Apostle Paul? Is it true for you that Christ gave his precious blood to redeem your soul and to transfer you from the, the domain of Satan into heaven and fellowship with God? Did Christ give his precious blood to redeem you from your feudal way of life? Did he die for you? And if that's true, brother and sister, then we, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Beloved, you you can see the reasonableness of all this, right? This makes sense, that you, you should come to Christ as a doulos. It is right. It is your reasonable service to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him who sacrificed himself for you. And if Christ redeemed you, then you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You see, that's slave language. The whole concept of redemption is that a price was paid to purchase you. But that purchase price comes with ownership and a right on behalf of the master to your service, to your affection to your devotion. He delivered you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous light. He delivered you from the, your bondage to sin and self. He enslaved you by his perfect righteousness. You understand that. He not only cut the chains that held you to sin and death, but he enslaved you. And again, the word sounds strange in our ear because it is such a blessed state to be enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ and to righteousness. We have the master of masters. He is a good and benevolent king. He is a master who graciously and mercifully provides for his slaves. And get this, he has chained you while snipping the chains to your sin. He has chained you to his righteousness. You can no more get out of that. If you're in Christ, then you could have gotten out of your sin on your own effort. Enslaved to righteousness. What a thought. What a reality. Beloved, we are a people for his possession. And all of this ought to really just explode on our hearts with significance and motivation, and we ought to be moved from the inside out to want to render our lives a living sacrifice to him. It's so important that we think clearly about ourselves and the nature of what it means to be a Christian. Christ owns us, we are his slaves, and there is no greater privilege than that. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my my life, my soul, my life, my all. Well, that's the first noun. There's a second noun in the text, and Paul turns to speak to his audience and to identify them. Note again, look back in Philippians verse one. Paul and Timothy, bond servants, bond servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints, here's our second noun, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. I like that. He kind of sweeps up church leadership like, and you guys too. That's good. I'm grateful for that. And I do want to point out, just by way of a couple of preliminary observations, some things that I think are helpful to us as we think about the church Note the word, first of all, all. He says, to all the saints. There's an emphasis on Christian unity in this book, and I want you to see it even in the Apostle Paul's heart from the first sentence of this letter. Look at verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Look at verse Seven, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Verse eight, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul understood this. There are no cliques. There's no favoritism. Nobody's elevated here. There's no preferential treatment. The reality is, Christ died for the greatest to the least of us, and we stand on a level playing field. And we should take note of things like this as we go through the scriptures. They help us understand the nature of church life. Secondly, I want you to note that he says, including the overseers and the deacons. And I don't really think he was like, I don't think that was an afterthought for him. I believe that he points them out specifically, he singles them out as kind of an apostolic endorsement. We're used to that during the political season where one, one politician might endorse another, not to bring politics in. I know it always sours the moment. But, but here's, here's what I think is going on. Paul is lending his apostolic uh, credentials to endorse The leadership of the church. He recognizes them and is mindful of their responsibilities to care for Christ's church, and he simply brings them up in front of the congregation by name. I so appreciate Charles's clear exposition of 1 Peter 5. It was excellent teaching on what the overseer is, what a deacon is, he brought up some parts about who deacons are, the fact that they serve and they, they minister to the flock and how, how elders minister in the way of feeding the flock truth by teaching and, and praying for the flock and how deacons come alongside to, to minister in Christ's stead to care for their physical needs. And here's here's simply the point I want to make in this. The reason I even touch on it is simply because I want you to see again where we tend to run through this door and want to get on with the subject matter of Philippians, we miss these things. What does this tell us again about the nature of a true church? It's got what? Elders and deacons. That will save you from a host of troubles. True churches have elders and deacons, and they are to be held up, not because they're a different class of Christian, but as Charles pointed out, they're examples to the flock. They are servants who protect and provide and guide the flock of God. They are servants who serve the flock of God, and Paul mentions them by name just to Remind the church of the importance of church leadership. But what I really want to direct your attention to this morning is this next noun. I want to direct your attention to the word saint. You know that word. It's a familiar word, even in our culture. And the word means to cut or to divide, to separate, to set apart that which is common from that which is holy, from that which is is dedicated really to God. And so in that sense, doulos and this this word saint, hagiois, overlap to some extent. Both refer to those who are, who are set apart to serve the interests of a master. It's used in the Old Testament, in particular, of inanimate objects, things like the utensils for worship, land, uh, the temple, um, God himself who is set apart. He's different. He's distinct from, from who we are. But it's a common word in the New Testament. In fact, it is the most common word. If you're going to get one word down that would convey your identity in Christ, it is this word. This is the word that's most often used to describe the Christian in the New Testament. A saint. And so this is another word that's so so fundamental to understanding who you are in Christ. And the Catholic Church has, has done the most to obscure the meaning of this word. You know that the Catholic Church teaches that there, there, there are your run-of-the-mill Catholics and then there are these separate group of people who are called the saints. And the saints are, are people who after their death are nominated and recognized by the church as having lived a life of sort of super Christian, remarkable Christian, amazing virtue, and they've done something super fantastic in the way of, 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 I think it's two attesting miracles. And the church then acknowledges that those are the saints A really delightful and and, and precious Catholic lady, uh, we were, Susie and I were on the edge of a place called Goosenecks. We were camping and a a motorhome pulled up next to us and the folks were Catholic and we didn't know it at the time at the beginning. Um, He came over that first night, interestingly enough, the husband did, and said, we see that you are motorcycle riders and we know that motorcycle riders are violent and they tend to knife people. And I I th- I thought he was kidding. He was not kidding. And he asked me just point blank, are you going to knife us in our sleep? And I said, "No sir, I'm not." And he was comforted by that. That was our introduction and then our departure. I didn't know this. I got home and I was shuffling through my wife's bags and I got down to the bottom of the bag and down at the bottom was a Ziploc baggie that had three St. Christopher medals in it. And I thought I might need to have a conversation with my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Susie went on to tell me that that woman in in kindness and consideration looked at Susie on the back of that motorcycle and she thought... (laughs) This lady needs a St. Christopher medal, right? (laughs) Because, in fact, she needs three of them. (laughs) Folks, that has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here. Nothing. And I want to tell you that St. Christopher, whoever he was, has nothing to do with whether Susie and I get home on that bike safely or not, I know who's in control of that, right? And we would not live by that superstition. We trust in God alone. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, who has appointed our day, the day of our birth, the day of our death. He knows and is in control of all of that, and we lean fully upon him. And so Paul here is not speaking about some saint. He's not speaking about any kind of superstition. This isn't just spiritual language. This is a pregnant term that you've got to grasp because this is who you are in Christ Jesus. Paul is not even thinking about the the sort of common parlance that we have in our culture where we'll we'll say, you know, that that lady is such a saint. Do you see who she's married to? Right? We, We talk that way. And mostly what we're referring to is saintly behavior. That is not the point. You've heard perhaps someone say, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. Again, what's the reference? What's the reference point? It's that I don't necessarily live in a way that toes the line. I don't cross all my moral T's and dot my moral I's. This is not speaking about behavior really at all, perhaps by implication. Because you are a saint, you will act in a certain way. There's no question about it. But really, this is referring to something entirely different in fact According to the Bible, if you're not a saint, then you're not a Christian. The Bible positively states that all Christians are saints, and the good news is it's not because you conducted yourself in a manner of life that recommended some sort of saintly acknowledgement by God. No, it's that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. Fulfilling the law in every jot and tittle, every respect. He was perfect through and through. He was truly separated from sinners in that sense. And it's on account of his righteousness that you today are clothed in righteousness as you have trusted in him. If you have put your faith in Christ, there was a great exchange. He took your sin and the penalty for it on the cross. He gave you his perfect standing. I didn't say great standing. I didn't say righteousness in some sort of qualified, you know, nobody's perfect sort of way. No, before the Father, you are clothed in pure, spotless, white righteousness. You are holy You're a saint. And there would be no problem whatsoever for you to walk up to somebody this morning and say, Saint Jeff, it's good to see you. You see, what makes this confusing to us is that that same word group is used to describe. Not only our position as holy in Christ, but also our growing practice in Christ's likeness. We have been sanctified. I'm as holy as I will ever be in the eyes of God, even now, and so are you. You've been accepted in the beloved. You've been accepted as righteous because Christ is righteous. But it's equally true, isn't it, that God is conforming us to the image of Christ and we are being made more righteous in the sense of our practical outworking of our possessed righteousness. And as we grow in holy behavior, we have forever a tendency somehow to talk about our holiness in terms, again, we're forever coming back to us and our performance. And we need to learn that, yes, while all of that is true, what is first and foremost and foundational about us as believers in Christ is that we have trusted him, lock, stock, and barrel, for every ounce of our right standing before God. Saints, in the truest sense of the word. Being saintly did not make you a saint. God accomplished that in his son, who lived a holy and perfect, sinless life. And he gives you that sinless standing whether the greatest sin in your life has been murder or you've just stolen pencils from the office. All of it needed to be paid for and all of it was paid for by Christ and you are clothed now in his righteousness. Brother and sister, if I were to press you and I were to say to you, are you a sinner or a saint? The right answer, of course, is yes. But if I pressed you and I said to you, no, you must land on one or the other, are you a sinner or a saint? If you're in Christ Jesus, you should fall on the word saint because his righteousness overcomes your sin. Where sin abounds, what? Grace does all the more abound. It super abounds. You are covered and you are clean. I told you, you still want to rush through this like it's just a greeting? I tell you, there's stuff in the Bible. If we'll just slow down and begin to look at these words critically. We are saints. Charles, last week, he mentioned carnival mirrors, and I I thought, man, that is exactly it. Beloved, if you don't understand this about yourself, that you are righteous in Christ's righteousness, if you are looking to yourself for that, you're forever going to be looking in a mirror that's all wonky, you're going to see some semblance of yourself, but you're going to be tall and wobbly and skinny, or you're going to be short and fat and, and squatty. If you want to see yourself aright, you've got to understand who you are in Christ. Brian Chapel says this, here once again, as is so often the case in the epistles of Paul, is the wonderful affirmation of the beauty and the benefits of our union with Christ. Again, the apostle has taken us away from ourselves as the answer to the challenges that are greater than we. End quote. Are you resting in Christ? saints, we have two more nouns and 20 more minutes. And so we're going to take these next two together. And I have scriptural warrant to do that because Paul actually pairs them together. Look at verse 2. Here's your next noun. Grace to you and peace. There's number 3 and 4. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this greeting over and over and over again in his epistles, but again, it's not meaningless chatter. It's a greeting that's very intentional and it's a greeting of great joy and delight in the good gifts of God. And he wants to bring you, right at the outset of this letter, he wants to encourage you by having you think accurately and clearly about God's posture toward you. Your posture, well, you're a doulos, you're a slave, and you also are righteous in Christ, you're a saint. But how does God look at you? Well, he has has a disposition towards you that is one of grace and peace. This word grace speaks of God's love and kindness to the undeserving. You may have learned it by by thinking about it as unmerited favor. It's the favor of God that we do not deserve. Here's one of the best definitions that I know of. This is from J.I. Packer in Knowing God. Quote, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit. What's he saying? Well, think with me for a moment. The grace of God is God's love freely shown. We don't earn it. And it's being shown toward guilty sinners. That much we understand. It's contrary to our merit. What does that mean? Well, we haven't earned it. It's against what we've done. In fact, he goes a step further and I think this is where this definition sets itself apart from so many others. He brings out this facet that grace is in defiance of our demerit. Not only do we not get what we deserve (laughs) but we get blessing on top though we've demerited it we have not earned it it defies the fact that what we've actually merited is judgment let me read it to you again the grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. No one on earth deserves anything but judgment. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, and child to have ever taken a breath except the Lord Jesus Christ is a sinner and is guilty before God's judgment bar. And yet God has been gracious, not just to us, but to all men. But he has been particularly gracious. If you are in Christ, you have known a grace that the world has not known. And so it was with the Philippians. They were the recipients of the grace of God, and they have peace with God, who was once their opponent. You know the verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no man should boast. You see, this is a gift that God has given you. It's a divine favor. It is something that he had given to the Philippians. So why does Paul, Paul is not saying, I hope you'll get saved by grace. They are saved by grace. Why is he then wishing for grace for them? And I think if you look within your own heart, even this morning, you can understand the reason why. Because we all need to be reminded that we do not stand on a foundation of our own goodness and our own works, but on a foundation of justification by grace, through faith. It is all of Christ. It's all of him. We are secure because of the grace that God has shown to us. You see, grace is the only reason you or I can come this morning to the table. Grace is the only reason that you're in Christ this morning. You weren't wiser than other men. It's that God acted in kindness toward you, and he saved you when you could not save yourself. Beloved, we have been saved by grace Every breath and every moment of our lives, we stand in grace. We are secured by grace. The scriptures use the language that we are kept for Jesus Christ. God knows us. And yet in his mercy and his grace, he holds us and keeps us. And we are daily dependent upon it. And one of the things that we pointed out, and we won't take much time on it this morning, but you'll remember that that grace that God gives is an active dynamic. It is a power. It does stuff. So when it says, by grace, you've been saved, what that means is God's grace acted toward you to save you. And when the, the uh, for instance, Titus 2, 11, and 12, listen to it, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now note this, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteous and godly in the present age. What's he saying? He's saying that that grace in your life day to day is a teacher teaching you how to live in a way that honors the Lord. Everything in your life, every good thing is a gift Of God's grace and even those things that sometimes you find difficult to swallow, those hard circumstances in your life, still those things are a grace of God, aren't they? Because he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God only does good to us as his people. And so Paul wants them to see this and to be reminded of it, that we stand in a position before the Father of grace. And there's a byproduct of grace, and it is peace. Peace in the life is a result of grace in the life. It's a root that means to join. It has the sense, really out of the the Hebrew word shalom, of of wholeness, well-being, being at rest, being complete. Grace means that God is no longer holding our sins against us. It means no longer are we helpless and ungodly and sinners who, who are God's enemies, but he has brought us in and made us his friends. If while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, you get the, the logic of all of that. Well, how much more now that we're no longer his enemies? Will God freely give us all things? Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, whether you feel it this morning or not, you are objectively at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are no longer at war with him. And get this, mark this, God is no longer at war with you. Sure feels like it sometimes when I don't live well. But what does that betray again? My confidence is where? In me. This is the objective reality of your life if you are in Christ. God is no longer at war with you. You're a friend, not foe. And he stands in a posture toward you that is one of peace. And he wants you to know that peace. I say it time and time again, and I mean it time and time again. We don't make enough of this. Peace is precious. It was blood-bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in a position of peace before God objectively, and that peace, brothers and sisters, should be working its way out in our midst toward one another. We are not a warring people. We are not a contentious people. We are not a people who, who, who are okay with simply chucking rocks into the pond to make ripples. No, we seek to preserve peace. We treasure peace. We're not peace fakers, right? We don't ignore things in order to make peace. We're peacemakers by the grace of God. We live out the way God has lived toward us. And these blessings, Paul says, flow from our God. Note that, our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ In fact, look at this with me. Look back at at just these three sentences in here. Really, it's two sentences, I guess, or one, but three lines in my Bible. Paul and Timothy, bond servants, note this, of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's of Christ, it's in Christ, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in two verses, has brought up the name of God and Christ again three or four times. This is Paul's life. He is forever focused on God and God's goodness and all that we have in him, the manifold blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew and where the fountain was, and he went there often to drink. And so we have the grace of God that has brought us into peace with God and therefore we know that peace which Paul will refer to later in this book as the peace of God which surpasses understanding. That peace that keeps us in harbor. Even when the storms rage, Jesus Christ is that, that, that breakwater, that wall that, that isolates us as his people and keeps us, though the storm rages, we are, we are calm nonetheless because we are at peace with God and therefore we have the peace of God in any and every circumstance. Can I ask you this morning, do you know the grace of God in your life? Have you ever asked him to be gracious to you? Maybe you've come here this morning and you've never actually prayed a prayer to God because you thought, I just can't approach him. Do you understand that as a sinner, you can approach God because of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can ask him to be gracious to you. You can ask him for salvation. You you, in your heart, perhaps have longed for that reconciled relationship and that peace that Jesus alone can bring. In fact, it's clear to me that peace is the primary thing that people in this world are seeking. I don't care who they are. And we're not again, we're not talking about that sort of shallow, tie-dyed, drug-induced, you know, peace, man. Th- that's not the thing. This is getting right with the God who created you who you know you're estranged from? Have you come to that God and said, Lord, I I can't get my life together, but if you offer grace and peace, I want it. Have you ever asked him to forgive your sins? Have you ever asked him to make you part of the family? I tell you this, if you haven't come all the way to Christ, you need to hear these words very clearly. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. he's not talking about physical weariness. You're weary of your sin. You're weary of your guilt. You're heavy laden with those things. They weigh on you and you wish there were some way out. There is a way out. And it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear his invitation again. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. That's not a suggestion. That's not a possibility. He's telling you that he will accept you. He will receive you. Unbelieving friend, if you have... You found yourself borne down with a guilty conscience. It is my joy today to declare to you that God extends His grace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will but repent and turn to Him in faith, He will accept you. And He will establish a treaty of peace with you, and you will know peace like you have never known it. Brother and sister in Christ, as we come. To the table this morning, I want you through just these brief words to hear the Lord beckon you again to this table. This table is for you. It is a gift of his grace. It is because peace was established at the cross of Calvary that we can come to this table and dine with him. It is in remembering all that we've been speaking about this morning that we come to the table not because we've cleaned ourselves up to come here but because we are not clean in and of ourselves and we need our feet washed we need to come back and remember yet again who sacrificed his life for us the righteousness in which we stand as saints and the fact that that Christ gave himself for us so if you come this morning weighed down with the fresh scent of sin upon your life, don't, don't shy away from the table. That's not what he means by eating and drinking in a worthy manner. This table is a fountain open for sinners. Come and understand that grace has been given to you, that peace is something that God established with you, And all of that seems so backwards and upside down, but his ways are not our ways, and his thinking is not our thinking. Jesus forgives sinners and only sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician, right? It's the lame who need to be healed. Amazing love. Father, what thanks can we render to you for all the good that you have done for us. Lord, we forget none of your benefits and we relish again this morning that you've given us an opportunity to come together and to consider these things that by your grace we have been made saints, by your grace we have peace, by your grace, Lord, you have transferred us from... That awful enslavement of former days to be slaves of the greatest master ever. Lord, we rejoice to be your slaves. We rejoice to serve you. It's only right. And yet, Lord, all of that we remember comes back down to the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his mighty resurrection. And so, Lord, we know we stand justified because of him. We will forever be justified because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our hearts are brimming with gratitude, Lord, for the freedom and the peace and the gladness that we know. Thank you for time this morning to worship your name. Hear us now as we close in song. We pray, Lord, that the words that we would sing would not be empty, but that they would be the overflow of hearts that are captivated by your grace. These things we ask in Christ's name, amen.